Welcome to Invisible and On Stage, a podcast series hosted to you by me, Dr. Kiasha Worthy, staff psychologist at Columbia Health Counseling and Psychological Services. Please remember that although the podcast is intended to provide support, it is not a replacement for psychotherapy. If you are interested in counseling services and are a Columbia University student on Morningside campus, please contact CPS at 212-854-2878. Hi, and welcome back to Invisible and On Stage. Today's conversation will be on ways to improve the Black experience at a PWI and beyond. We are joined by Judge Monique Walker from Augusta, Georgia. (laughs) In an honor of Black History Month and our guest, I think it would be educational to highlight the history of the relationship between Blacks and the justice system, which dates back to 1708. During that time, lawmakers in Pennsylvania developed a reentry rehabilitation system. The goal of this system was to reduce crime and recidivism. In 1787, began the wheelbarrow men laws, which comprised of mostly incarcerated European males. All convicts, except murderers, were contracted out and put to public labor. The goal was to induce shame and reduce criminality. After the Emancipation and Reconstruction era, between 1865 and 1898, there was an increase in crime, which African-American males seemed to have dominated. The wheelbarrow men laws quickly diminished and labor was no longer soft, but harsh and brutal. Lawmakers coerced African-American males to comply with labor demands and social order through criminalization and incarceration. At that time, many Southern states poured millions of dollars into this system. Many African-American men worked until their death with the average lifespan of 31 years and were never compensated for their contribution. As a result of this system, African-American men are seen as criminals and inhumane, rather than a victim of racial and systemic oppression. Judge Walker, if if I can turn it over to you, I'm wondering how much of this abusive relationship with the judicial system influenced your career decision-making as a Black woman. This relationship uh, had a lot to do with my career uh, decision-making. I have always known that I was interested in helping people. So it didn't start out so much about the uh, African-American journey or response to the African-American experience, particularly that what you just described, but it ended up uh, that way. So I knew I wanted to be an attorney and I, I, I can find some places in notes where I used to say that I wanted to be a judge, but never in my wildest dreams that I realized how severe this situation would be at this present time in this present age. And so uh, seeing the plight of other people, seeing the plight of relatives, to be quite honest, the plight of friends, the plight of neighbors, and the plight of our uh, culture across state and country lines encouraged me for sure to um, run to seek this role so that I could be an agent for change. Monique Walker is currently serving her first term as a Richmond County State Court Judge and yes, Judge Walker is from my second hometown, Augusta, Georgia. So I'm, I'm also happy to have you here. She attended the University of Georgia, where she earned her Bachelor of Business Administration in 1993 and received her Juris Doctorate from the University of Georgia School of Law 
1996. Monique has over 20 years of legal and managerial experience in both the public and private sectors involving criminal and civil matters. She is also the proud founder of her own law firm, Walker Hill and Associates, LLC. So should I call you Monique? I know you're friends with my mom and that's a, how you know we talk about networking, right? <laughs> um, should I call you Monique, Judge Walker? What works best, Sarar? Whatever you're most comfortable with. We, we're connected in, in, in various ways through the sisterhood, uh, by, by role or person, whatever you're comfortable with. Have you ever experienced any injustice when you were in college? In college, I went to a predominantly um, white institution, and there was nothing that I can recall that was directly impacting or designed um, to disenfranchise me as an individual, but certainly there were um, lots of programs and opportunities in place that I think that were designed uh, for students of other cultures and backgrounds where African-American students did not get to participate. I can tell you that for sure. Do you mind sharing some of those examples? Scholarship, uh, dorm opportunities. I was in the dorm with no air conditioning <laughs> and those kinds of things. And I didn't even realize maybe I missed it. But on the other side, there were very few African-Americans. I think those dorms for some may have been cost prohibitive for African-American uh, students, but I can't say with any degree of certainty. I also think uh, opportunities when your parents are legacies of a place. My parents were not, of course. And so there were opportunities in that networking and that uh, dog, bulldog family life that people just naturally mm-hmm. inherited. You know, it's not a system. I think it wasn't designed to disenfranchise, but rather to enhance another group of people. So there were just uh, long-standing traditions, if you will, that were not in any way positively impactful for me. Were you active in any way on campus as a college student? Oh my goodness, <laughs> yes. As a college student, I um, volunteered. I was a uh, student alumni association where I got the student award of the year. I was top 10 among Greek, African-Americans, and all the Greek, not just the Panhellenic campus. But I was top 10 among Greek. I was on the homecoming court. I was president of my sorority uh, for two years where I got lots of accolades, Dean's List, the wow. Fuku Honor Society. The, um, there were several uh, volunteer organizations, Black Law Students Association, and then the community organizations, as well as Leadership UGA. Those are the things that I can readily uh, recall. And then I did some mentoring. How did you balance you know, being involved in all of those extracurriculars while still being a student? Work first. You do your work, work first. first. Um, it is a very fine balance. I think some people, it comes natural. I have two daughters now, and for one of them, she does it without my assistance, and the other one I do all the balancing for her. So I think <laughs> it's a, um, a good lesson to learn early and certainly to incorporate, but you have to get your work done first, and then everything else will follow. If you're not doing the work, you're not going to be on the beams, you're not going to be invited to honor society. Do you think it is, because I, I know when I was in college, I was an athlete, and so I didn't get an opportunity to participate in probably any extracurriculars, but like I pledged Delta, which, you know, Monique and I are part of, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority. <laughs> um, 
But other than that, I wasn't a part of anything. And I remember graduating and I had some regret about that. And what do you what did you find to be rewarding about being a part of other organizations and other things that were on campus? Well, I'll say that um, services, I'm, that's what I'm made of. That's what I do. I've just enjoyed it. I did it at high school. And so I think the most valuable of the uh, things that I gained for my engagement and participation was a lasting relationship, both personally and open the doors professionally. I think as athletes or non-athletes such as myself, you have to decide what's best for you, what's important. If you get a, a scholarship to run track, you better run and <laughs> run fast. But I'm not athletic, so that was not an option for me. But um, you have to find ways to do what's best for you. And you're not going to always um, get it right on the first try. So no real regrets, but I have some relationships, uh, primarily from my sorority, for sure my college roommates, and then a few other friends for whom I am in constant uh, contact and then of course I can always call the school and talk to some other individuals who can be helpful um, as mentors and those things so no no regrets no sports but I don't I think you may have maybe missed moving outside of your bubble but I don't know if that would have done anything for your career because you seem to be so self-motivated yes <laughs> it took me a while to be more open to networking and having like, I remember always saying to myself, like, oh, I hate those, like, short conversations with people when you have to meet them. I'm like, oh, they, like, I always cringe. I was just going to say, I was in my late 40s when I fully understood the value of networking. And I encourage you and all of the college students listening to start today. Every relationship um, has a meaning, some more significant than others. But they say, oh, I want to do it on my own. I don't need any help. Well, good for you. But uh, it's always good to know people, to know what they're doing. People share ideas. People share um, suggestions that could make you a millionaire overnight, that could improve your health, that could enhance your family, and quite frankly, put a smile on your face or de-stress you. And the opposite can happen, too. But I'm just saying I find people to be um, valuable for so many reasons. Now, do I do people all day? No, but I do enjoy and appreciate the value mm -hmm. that people bring in my life personally and here at work. I think you're right about that. I'm actually starting to see the value in that, and I always encourage students. I think um, at least the students at Columbia, which is a PWI, and you went, to, you attended a PWI, some of the questions that I hear from Black students is feeling alone like maybe being the only black student or maybe not connecting with other black students or trying to figure out like, where are they? Do we have these things in common? I'm wondering for you, how did you manage to connect with other people who look like you? Well, I can tell you as early as uh, high school, I've been one of the few African-American students. So uh, I can recall as clear as day in high school being only one of two, my high school was predominantly white uh, at the time. And in the upper level courses, they were maybe, I, I was the only African American in my AP English class. I remember that. I never read those books. But anyway, um, and so when I got to Georgia, it wasn't that much of a surprise. So instead of being in a small classroom, the only one, we would be in a classroom of 200 people. Literally, they have auditorium style classrooms. And you could just see people spread out, you know, like little sprinkles of pepper. 
And I think sometimes we would gravitate toward one another, but we did have um, like the African American Student Association. People tend to gather in dorms, but I could tell you that nobody comes looking for you. And so, uh, you know, but in the student center and places where people hang out, you just kind of find your way in your niche in your group. And sometimes that's possible for some people and some people not so much. But um, while I was associated with lots of African-American people, I also have friends who are not, but it just worked out. I I just go with the flow. I went in Rome, do as the Roman did. We talked about me being self-motivated, but it also sounds like you were a social butterfly. Like you weren't afraid to get to know people. Well, I some more than others. Afraid, not necessarily, but I had my mm-hmm. standard crew. And again, it was this person I just talked to. And then we get a, I get another text every Wednesday. It's called Wednesday Weigh-In. And it goes to all of the roommates. And so I, I just checked uh-huh. with those same girls from 1989. Um this morning. And so those relationships have remained intact. And then, you know, our friends have friends. So one of them was in a different sorority. So we were exposed to those people. Um, in my major, you know, you study or do projects with people who feel like you have something in common with. When you go to the cafeteria, you migrate towards that table. So, um, I'm not a psychologist, but, you know, sometimes we have to bring ourselves along. I'm encouraging my children to do the same thing. Well, I think that's one of the things you, you said earlier was about getting out of your comfort zone. And I can say that much better than I can do it. You've been practicing, right? And it sounds yes. like you are now instilling it into your children as well. You were the former assistant district attorney, and you worked with several or probably multiple misdemeanor and juvenile cases. What was that like? Sometimes we experience vicarious traumatization. At least I do it in my work sometimes. Balancing my own mental health when I'm hearing about traumatic, you know, my client's traumatic experiences. You know, I think my, so here again, I was the only African-American female at the district attorney's office um, when I started working there. And I think it was one guy in, in terms of lawyers. And so I think my trauma, if there was any, would have resulted from the culture there. But I didn't experience, um, I think I had more eye-opening events. The first case I ever tried was a child molestation. And so that was... Um, a tough case, but I had no qualms about prosecuting it because that's what it demanded. Um, and I'm very sensitive as it relates to children. And so I had no qualms. And, um, and when you, as a district attorney, assistant district attorney, you prosecute felony cases and those criminal cases are the most, are more egregious, more heinous than those that are misdemeanor court where I am currently. So you see rape and murders and those kinds of things. And so um, they almost become routine, maybe a, a very broad word, but you become accustomed to that is the nature of the work. But the culture was something different. I mean, if you can share just some of the challenges with the culture, because I think, like, as you mentioned, you know, you can be able to deal, manage the work, but I think our, who we work with, and like what the rules are, the established rules and whatever the system is in place could be trauma or traumatic in itself. And I don't even think they are real rules. I think they are biases. <laughs> <laughs> so I can I can recall um, two things. I can recall when I, the, for me, it was being educated and taught how to properly try a case and everything that comes with it, like who's training who. And the second thing was about communication and inclusion. 
And so I, I can I vividly recall being in the courthouse preparing to try my first case with no help picking a jury. I was nervous that they come that time that this case. But down the hall, but several of my colleagues in another courtroom all piled up for one case. And they were all, they were not new prosecutors. But one guy who happened to be a white guy came and sat with me um, to pick his jury. And he wasn't the odd man out, but he was the one that, he was not highly favored, you know, most of us mm-hmm. others. And so I appreciate that until this very day. A second instance I recall, I heard people talking around, moving around in the office about some retreat or what it turned out to be was one of our continuing education programs and it's out of town. Everybody was making plans and they had hotel rooms and those things. And I thought, are we supposed, what are we doing? And so I went to the DA at the time, who is now a judge here. And I said to him, what's going on? Are we supposed to be registering for this conference? He was like, yeah. And I was like, when is it? And he told me, and I just cried. He too was like, I just cried in his office because everybody else was registered, knew where they were going, talked about their roommates, made travel plans. And I literally went to this conference with, I had my mother to ride with me. It was in, I think, Duckle Island and just made my way throughout the whole conference by myself and came back. And I don't remember a thing about the conference, but everybody else knew about it, never forgot it. And I didn't stay long either. Sounds like you weren't, like, as you mentioned, you weren't included or supported at that space. Correct. Yeah. Correct. What do you recommend for students who may feel that way, like in classes or on campus? Like what would be your recommendations for them? Should they speak out? Because, you know, maybe going to another college may not be that the option for them. I think that um, those kind of decisions have to be made on a case-by-case basis. Uh, the impact on me may be different from the way somebody else has been impacted. I think students who come from predominantly white schools into predominantly white colleges may be better suited, you know, to move through that community. Uh, some who don't, you know, may have a different experience and vice versa. But I do think that... Um, in 2021, and as African Americans in particular, we don't spend enough time dealing with our mental health issues. So the first thing you have to do is evaluate your circumstances and, in my mind, determine class-wise. Now, do you need other groups and social groups? Of course we do. And so you should accept some responsibility in making sure that you are affiliated with groups and organizations who can support you and also seek out help and counseling if you don't feel good about it. Let's find a way to get comfortable with our surroundings, to get comfortable with our environment because college is our home for at least a period of four years. And so um, anytime you're spending more time being uncomfortable and questioning yourself and your own values and those kinds of things, I think it's time to evaluate and immediately uh, seek help and guidance and make your decisions based upon your own set of goals and your mental health. How do you take care of your mental health? Because I think that's that's great advice. You know what? I have a counselor. I don't see my counselor as much because of COVID. Matter of fact, I haven't seen him at all. Oh, I wish I could go because of COVID. But when I need to, I have open and honest conversations. It took me a long time, but I'm not playing any more games with my mental health. Um, if I'm feeling stressed, I, uh, as the old folks used to say, I go and sit down. I walk away. I relax. I deal with people all day um, at work, in the courtroom, 
my colleagues, my social organizations. I'm a member of a gazillion of them. So you're zooming here and doing this. But when I go home, I want to be at home. And sometimes people are upset about it, but I, you can't, you know, if you call me after hours about something legal or asking questions, I generally say, oh, can I give this person your number to call and ask you a question? And I say, well, can you ask them to call my office tomorrow? Unless it's an emergency, of course, but and sometimes other people's emergencies are just that in their mind. But being a part of the system, I know that it's not as critical, but it's not, you know, I can't tell you that your situation is not emergent to you, but I can tell you if it's not emergent to me. <laughs> so um, I can, you know, I, and I'll do my best to help whomever, whenever, however, but I try to, I'm at home for me to be at home, you know, take off the judge's cap, the lawyer's thinking and be a mom, you know, and, and the day is never finished in that regard. But I do see a counselor. I pay to go and sometimes drive an extended difference. And I'm sharing that to say it's worth every minute and every dime. If you could find yourself in a place where, as he told me, if you can get over yourself and your own insecurities, it's for, for yourself. So that's where I am. And you don't have to wait this late to do it. And I appreciate you for sharing it because I think there's so much stigma in the black community regarding like mental health treatment. And so hearing someone like in your status to say like you go to a therapist and you know, you recognize the importance of it. I, I really appreciate you for sharing that. One of my best friends was a psychologist goes as well. She turned, you know, she said, I asked her, who's your counselor? You know, and I would call her counselor. She, um, <laughs> she does the same thing. And so I think um, the more educated you are, and the more you understand how important it is to be able to maintain. So we get we get this life one time. And so in order to keep the train on the track at mm-hmm. this fast pace that we live, sometimes we have to put the brakes on and hop off the train to get a little help so we can have energy to get back on and keep going towards our destination. What does it mean for you to have a black woman in the White House to be our VP? Yeah, I think that's amazing. I think it's awesome. I think it is um eye-opening and certainly opens the door for other females, not just females, but African-American females, all females, all girls, to be able to dream big and know that this is a real possibility. I hope that it also brings with it a sense of pride, a sense of responsibility, a sense of I must do certain things so that I can achieve these goals. If I'm not doing what I'm not supposed Mm -hmm. to do, I'm not learning uh, proper manners and etiquette. If I don't dress appropriately, you're never going to get to the mm-hmm. next level to do these things. So I hope it will start to encourage all of us to want to do and be better and to strive to reach higher heights. But I'm just pink and excited and delighted. So before we transition into our Flash from the Past segment, in honor of Black History Month and considering our guest, Judge Walker, I'd like to recognize our first Black female judge in the U.S., uh, Jane Matilda Bolin. Judge Bolin was born April 11, 1909, and died at the age of 98 on January 8, 2007. So she was the first of many, first black woman to graduate from Yale Law School, the first to join the New York City Law Department, and the first black woman to serve as a judge. She was sworn into the bench of the New York City Domestic Relations Court in 1939. Uh, Judge Walker was also the first. She was the first African-American female to serve as staff attorney and Deputy Compliance Officer for University Healthcare System. Flash from the past. 
This is a segment of the podcast where the listeners can learn more about you outside of your profession. I would like for you to embrace your younger college self and think about your preferences at that time. All right, Judge Walker, did you prefer exams or essays? I'm going to give you the answer that my first management teacher gave up. It's situationally based. That means it de- it depends. But I would, if I had to choose, probably essays. Individual or group projects? Individual. Okay. Study ahead or cram? Cram, for sure. Books or movies? Class book. <laughs> if you want to interpret it as that, yes. <laughs> movies. <laughs> movies. Night owl or early bird? Early bird. Caught the worm. Follower or leader? Leader. On time or late? Barely on time. <laughs> Front or back of class? Back or middle. Never the front. Did you go out on Friday nights or stayed in? Stayed in or came home. Sometimes out, but not too much. Michael Jackson or Prince? Michael Jackson. The Cosby Show or Good Times? Oh my goodness. Um, Good Times. Jet or Ebony Magazine? Jet, just quicker to read. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so now I want you to think about what you would tell your college self. I'm going to start a sentence, and I want you to finish. Prepare for... Four. Don't allow yourself to... Be distracted. Good. Well, thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) We've reached our closing for today's episode with Judge Walker. And before we end, I think it, you know, would be necessary to highlight some of the, the tips that Judge Walker mentioned to help you with navigating a PWI as a black student, as well as, you know, I'll, I'll also offer some, some tips as well. So I'll first start off with highlighting some of the experiences that students report at PWIs, which include, but are not limited to feeling excluded, unsupported, marginalized, and feeling like an imposter. When these experiences are combined with intergenerational trauma, it can lead to further isolation, questioning one's identity, poor self-esteem, and a poor academic and or career experience. Furthermore, the emotions tied to these lamentable encounters can impact one's psychological and physical health. While some of us are resilient, others are not. And because of that, it is important to get out of your comfort zone. Judge Walker noted that she navigated her PWI by having community with both Black and non-Black students, being active on campus, in recognizing her purpose in college, which was to work. I challenge you to do the same. And it's not entirely about creating or joining a community. Maybe start with strengthening the one you already have. I know it's harder to do during COVID, but schedule Zoom coffee dates or go on a socially distanced walk with a friend or classmate. Starting something new is hard for all of us, but the outcome of feeling more connected definitely outweighs the feeling of isolation. Lastly, I think many people fail to recognize the connection of our mental and physical health. We as Blacks are already at a high risk for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, etc. And imagine what our body experiences when we are under a lot of stress and are dealing with unresolved traumas. Judge Walker acknowledged the significance of therapy in her own life. And although therapy may not solve all of your problems, it can be a start to help you make sense of where to begin and even how to get out of your comfort zone. Therapy provides an opportunity to manage stress, heal, 
and can be another protective factor that extends our lives. Thank you so much for being a part of this, Judge Walker. I'm sure I will be hearing about you through my mom still. (laughs) (laughs) I love her. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me, and we're so proud of you, and I look forward to seeing you and meeting you in person when you come back to Augusta. Thank you so much for offering up your time and spending it with me. If you are a Columbia University student on Morningside campus, and today's episode left you feeling like you could benefit from talking more about this topic with an expert, please do not hesitate to call CPS at 212-854-2878.